Dear listeners, welcome to the fourth episode of the Voices of the Humanities. My name is Hanna Nijtmans. And I am Diego Casas. Today, we will talk first and foremost about America. We will talk about American studies, American culture, and how it fits in the humanities. And for that, we have here with us a special guest, the Assistant Professor of American Studies here at the University of Groningen, Dr. Tim Jaffs. Me and Hannah, right, we know Tim Jaffs because we work with him as well in this research group. Mm-hmm. We, we, we are studying podcasts and understanding its influence in American politics. But today, Dr. Tim Jaffs is here to cover a range of interesting topics and especially to talk about his own broader research. Exactly. So, Dr. Tim Jaffs is British by birth and has a background in English literature. So, this is some of the research we did on you. <laughs> he received his PhD in American Studies from King's College in London, and he has taught in the American Studies program here in Groningen since 2011, specializing mostly in cultural, literary, and environmental and political history in the United States in the 20th and 21st centuries. Aside from his teaching, Last year, his monograph, The Argument About Things in the 1980s, Goods and Garbage in an Age of Neoliberalism, was published. Right now, he's also working on a new project about crisis narratives in a post-9-11 U.S. culture. So, thank you very much for being here today. And, uh, yeah. Thank you. So, maybe to start this conversation, we are are doing these questions also to other scholars. How did you end up here? <laughs> well, firstly, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to talk to you uh, today. How I ended up as a, a British guy teaching American studies in the Netherlands yes. is kind of an interesting uh, story. In so far as I was, um, my first degree was in English. I always knew I wanted to study English, specialize in English literature. I mean, really from quite an early age, I knew that's what my BA was going to be. In and like a lot of British people of a certain age, I was a terrible snob at the time, <laughs> especially when it came to American culture. I thought, well, you know, British culture is obviously more sophisticated, more advanced, etc., etc. So when I was studying for my BA, I never took any module in American literature. I avoided it like the plague. I was interested <laughs> instead in, you know, English modernism, Irish modernism, um, the stuff that I thought was, um, you know, well, culturally superior. Then when it came, when then when it came to uh, do an MA, which I only did after having spent a year um, doing other strange things like working in the in the financial service industry in oh. in London and backpacking around Asia, which everybody of of, of my generation in in Britain uh, seemed to be doing around that time. Uh, when I decided, like, okay, it's time to go back and do a, an MA, I thought, what should I do my MA in? I'll do my MA in English, of course, because that's what I'm interested in. And then I found there was this MA that specialized in American literature and culture. And I thought, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to give the Americans a a chance. And I kind of wanted to fill that gap in my knowledge anyway. Uh Because, you know, when you you take these modules as an undergraduate, and at least the way it works um, at UCL, where I was, you couldn't take everything, right? And so there were these these, these gaps in your knowledge that you wanted to fill. And uh, so I thought, okay, why not? It's only for 12 months. It's a 12-month MA. I'll read some American stuff. And as soon as I started reading American stuff, and it's 19th century classic American mm-hmm. literature, really, you know, people like Whitman, Hawthorne, Melville, Emily Dickinson, mm. that kind of stuff. I thought, yeah, this is loads better um, <laughs> than boring English uh, literature. Um, so that was the moment that my interest really, really turned. Um, and, 
I ceased being, um, you know, obsessed by Irish modernists like James Joyce and instead was more, became increasingly interested in a kind of American, uh, literary, uh, tradition. But even when I was doing my MA, I didn't have my mind on an academic career as such at that point. And after the one year MA, um, again, you know, I did my usual thing of leaving education and trying to avoid regular employment, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is a, uh, a career path I've, I recommend, I've recommended to some students, but they don't, uh, <laughs> they don't seem, they don't seem to, uh, want to follow my, uh, recommendation. And again, I did, you know, various things. I traveled a lot. I lived in various countries. Um, I trained as, uh, a teacher of English as a foreign language, um, which is something I did after my MA for many years. Uh, in, in fact, um, I met my wife, uh, when we were working in Prague in the Czech Republic. Mm. Turns out she, she was American. So, um, I started to study her and her culture, <laughs> um, as well. And, and weirdly, we ended up moving back to the UK. Um, I was teaching English, uh, as a foreign language in a, in a language school in London. And one day I just thought, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm. I want to go back to, um, studying the things that most interest me. And that's when I went back to do a PhD as a relatively, relatively mature, mm-hmm. um, uh, student. And there'd been several years gap between my MA and my, um, PhD. I guess that was, I think, 2007 mm-hmm. that I went back to do, uh, the, the PhD. Um, and when I completed that, um, in summer of 2011, I, like lots of people who just get their PhDs, um, was left with the, uh, the terrible thought, how am I going to get a job? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's great that I've got a PhD. I'm now qualified for an academic career, but where's the job going to come from? Especially in the UK at the time, which, you know, the academic market, job market still is incredibly tough. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to get a teaching fellowship at King's. I just missed out on that. Um, and, uh, I ended up going back to teaching English as a foreign language. And so I thought maybe I won't have this academic career that I spent, (laughs) you know, four years working towards. And then one day at the British Library, I received an email from a friend of a friend saying this Department of American Studies um, in Groningen, which I at the time thought was in Germany, um, (laughs) was looking looking for a lecturer for uh, 12 months. And because... You know, I'd already lived uh, a life where I'd traveled around a lot. I'd lived in various um, different countries. Um, I'd always thought, well, if the opportunity arises and it's just for a short time, time I, I can come. I can go and go and explore somewhere else, even if it's for 12 months. And that was nearly eight years ago. So um, that's how I got here. <laughs> nice. Cool. Well, maybe, um, well, one question that I get asked very often as also an American Studies student is uh, the question, what is American Studies? So maybe um, you having spent seven years here in the department uh, would help us answer this question. Yeah, it's a, a very easy question to um, answer. Um, you can answer it by saying American Studies is the interdisciplinary study of American culture or American civilization. But the easiness of that answer is also kind of misleading, right? Because um, immediately, we, as good academics, we might want to start defining our terms. So interdisciplinary, hmm, well, what does that mean uh, precisely? An American culture or American civilization, what does that mean precisely? At its founding, um, you know, in the kind of 
uh, set in the early, early-ish, uh, uh, 20th century. I hesitate because it's difficult to, to, to kind of find an exact point of, of origin, but it, at least in its kind of American founding, US American founding more specifically, interdisciplinary was reasonably narrowly understood as a kind of combination of, um, historical studies and literary studies. Mm. Um, but, Hannah, as you'd know, now that you've been through our program, to that kind of essential um, mix of two disciplines, we've now added lots of different perspectives, or rather the field of American studies has added lots of different perspectives as it has evolved through time. So um, there's a lot, uh, there's a strong contribution of critical theory and cultural theory in um, contemporary American studies programs, certainly here at Groningen. Media studies figures reasonably prominently. Um, if you've taken any of my courses, you know that I'm interested in political history and uh, political theory, as well as, um, you know, literary and cultural studies as well. So that kind of, um, the interdisciplinary aspect means it's a very open um, discipline that, that, that we, in a way, kind of, we're, we're totally free with not having fixed disciplinary boundaries that say, you can't take this approach, you must take um, this approach. There's a kind of, we celebrate the kind of um, heterogeneity of disciplinary perspectives that have evolved as American studies have evolved. And the other thing we need to think about as well, you know, if you think about my brief description of it as an interdisciplinary study of American culture or American civilization, we also have to ask the question, what do we mean by America? Mm. And what do we mean by American right. culture, right? So um, in the early days of the kind of um, establishment of American studies as a, as a field in the United States, as I said, there's this heavy, heavy emphasis on literature and, and, and history. I know you've taught in the past about, you know, controversies over the construction of a canon, for mm -hmm. example, a lot of the work of, of, um, uh, early American studies scholars, the founders of our, uh, discipline in the United States, I guess, was, was kind of based on that, on, on a kind of canon formation in literary, of literature that somehow answered the question, what is American about American culture or, Amer or American civilization. So people like Mark Twain, people like Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, uh, people like Melville were invested with a kind of, um, uh, a kind of cultural authority as defining this new, um, national, uh, tradition. As you can imagine, I mean, if you've got any sense of how the humanities has developed over the course of the 20th century or the 21st century and as you'll as you'll know from you know what you already know about the canon wars um etc etc that's a pretty narrow um uh, uh kind of spread of text that i'm talking about mm -hmm. you know dead white dead white men the american version mm. right um and so that's now um that's been subjected to critique from the 60s or, or 70s that has attempted to kind of move away from um uh, a, a traditional focus on a canon that's understood as kind of nation building and, and constructing a national identity to try to include um, plural kind of diverse um, voices, whether it's the voices of um, African-Americans, indigenous Americans, queer Americans, women, etc., etc. And in more recent decades still, and this is particularly relevant since we do American studies here in the Netherlands, we're thinking of, we've been thinking about, and the whole 
global movement of Americans has been thinking about um, whether or not American studies needs to be or ought to be narrowly focused on the United States. Mm -hmm. So you see the development really since the 1990s of um, American studies understood as an international field, sometimes an inter-American field where the focus is on relations within the American hemisphere between the United States and other American countries, both in North America and South America. But also, you know, in somewhere like Europe, we can't help but um, ha engage with the United States as an international mm -hmm. um, force, a political force, a cultural force, an ideological force mm -hmm. um, as well that, you know, that shapes um, or has shaped the way that we think about things and the way that we we do those things. So the American Studies program that we have here at Groningen, at least um, this is the way I like to think about it, has evolved to reflect those important developments in a field that, that you know, began decades ago as really quite narrowly focused on um, a, a kind of uh, a national project. Right, yeah, very nice that you also point to this reflection because um, last week we've also talked about what the humanities can do and I think uh, the American Studies program, for me at least, is a very good example of a reflective... Um, perspective on American culture so and also maybe very often a critical one I think as well so um, I guess that might also bring us to some of examples of actual research in the American studies and I think that um, your book uh, uh, recent book the argument about things in the 1980s is also um, I guess a critical reflection on American culture so I guess for us one thing we find very interesting to know is what prompted you to start thinking about this subject and and why did you start writing about this? Yeah. Um, a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in starts from the, from the ground up. So it starts from quite a narrow interest and then, and then broadens out. Mm. Um, if you think about the title of the book, you know, it seems kind of a lot of big things in there. The argument about things in the 1980s, right? This whole decade and then goods and garbage and an age of neoliberalism, right? What's the age of neoliberalism? Well, um, I think of it as, as the age that began in the 1970s, and I fear may not have ended, but perhaps that's a, uh, another um, discussion. But the real germ of the project was just my interest in individual American writers um, that mm. I started reading when I did my MA, um, perhaps the most important of which um, is the uh, American novelist Don DeLillo, who... You, I don't know if you've, we, I don't know if you've read any of his, his stuff. Um, but to my mind, his greatest novels were written in the 1980s. Mm. Um, novels like The Names, um, and White Noise and Libra, which is a fictionalized account of the assassination of, um, President Kennedy. And one of the things that really interested me about DeLillo, um, was the fact that his writing would seize upon the material culture of um, uh, American life. And I thought, well, he really writes well about mm -hmm. the things that we live among. Mm -hmm. Or, sorry, that, you know, well, I guess we all live among them as well, but but, but the way he renders the material culture that Americans in um, the 1980s were uh, lived among. I mean, I mean, if you read White Noise, for example, it begins with this brilliant description of... Um, parents bringing their uh, children to 
a college campus in the United States, and it describes this line of cars mm. laden with all the all all the, all the stuff that the kids, uh, the college kids, are going to have in their in their um, uh, college rooms for that um, uh, for that coming academic year. And this this brilliant description, almost you know, just this kind of litany of um, objects that they bring into this uh, mm. campus. But it's all it's also a novel that's um, littered with descriptions of waste and trash and mm-hmm. garbage as well. You're kind of what this is what becomes of um, uh, the kind of uh, material cornucopia of late 20th century American life. In the end, right, it becomes refuse. It becomes um, uh, garbage, and that was the germ of my interest in 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 this in, in this project because I just found it intriguing the way that Delillo particularly wrote about things in American literature of the 1980s. And when I read literary criticism of it, the thing that frustrated me about literary criticism of it was the literary critics never seemed to me to quite capture Dillolo's genius, which was they all wanted to see him as being very critical of um, consumer capitalism, which, of course, I think he is. Mm-hmm. But the brilliance of his writing is he is not simply critical of it right he doesn't just kind of um attack it or assail it but the way he writes about um the um almost kind of well the phantasmagorical uh properties of um american goods in american supermarkets for example the reason i think it's particularly strong um uh writing is because he captures some of the kind of power of those goods he captures some of the magic you might almost say Mm -hmm. the allure of those um goods whilst also kind of um having a a a quite obvious and brilliantly sardonic critique of that aspect of um american life and from that that you know the then the book developed into you know a study of how other writers but not just writers also how artists were perhaps um doing similar things or perhaps different things um, in the same kind of a period. So, you know, how did, it, how did other writers represent objects in their, the, uh, in their books or how did um, visual artists like um, Jeff Koons or Julian Schnabel, how did they represent um, goods and garbage in ways that might bear interesting comparison with a writer like DeLillo? And I kind of built the project out from there so in its final form although there's a lot of literature in it it's not just about literature um but it's a kind of broader cultural history about um what i think is a is a kind of significant proved in my research to be a significant preoccupation of american culture through the long durée of the history of the united states right mm-hmm. from the very earliest um uh moments of uh Puritan settlement, at least in New England, you can read these these Puritan um, settlers speaking very anxiously about what we would now recognise as materialism or, mm-hmm. or something. You know, this is supposed to be a kind of a godly project, a theological project, and you people are just um, you're only interested in catching fish or uh, <laughs> trapping furs to make a profit or something something like that. And and one one of the things I attempt to do in the way I frame the book is to say that this very old argument is reanimated around um, the second half of the 1970s, that kind of crisis period um, in which the United States transitions 
um, towards a more openly, what we now understand is a more openly neoliberal um, ideology and political economy. Around that mo moment, this argument about things is kind of reignited mm -hmm. or at least reintensified. Because I don't say, I don't, I don't want to argue that it ever kind of goes away, mm -hmm. but it's, it, it's reintensified. And I guess the argument of the book is that literary and cultural representations of, um, the material culture that Americans lived among in this period help to, in quite useful ways, help to problematize and complicate um, this long-running debate about the role of material things in American life that had always been there, but then gets reignited in the 1970s around the time of um, the energy crisis. And Jimmy Carter's famous 1979 crisis of confidence speech where he insists that you know we've learnt we americans have learnt that owning things and consuming things cannot satisfy our longing mm. for meaning there's a perfect example of the argument about things mm. um from the title of the the book and the question is how does literature how does culture and its engagement um in this argument about things how does it enrich it deepen it um complexify it in ways that you know political discourse um, such as Carter's, I think, often fails to do. Mm. Right. Maybe uh, Carter's speech didn't seem very successful, right? I mean, there's also a way, um, I think you called it spiritualizing a material crisis in the sense that it. Um, Carter here talks about inflation, whereas, um, which is a very material thing, and then he uh, talks about it as a, a crisis of confidence. And so... How do you, so it does fit in the argument about things, I guess, but, um, it doesn't necessarily seem to be very help, like very, the rhetoric didn't work in the sense. So how can you, can you elaborate a little bit? Yeah, I think so. I mean, because, you know, one of the interesting things about, um, the argument about things over the course of US history is, is it's, it's always had two, at least two sides, right? I mean, obviously, it, it's in fact multidimensional, but you can identify two strong tra traditions, right? One I've already kind of alluded to this this Puritan kind of discourse that says, "No, this is not about things. We're not about things. We're not about acquiring land or, or goods or all, all that kind of stuff. We're here for for we're 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 here for higher reasons, higher purposes, you know." Um, what that rhetoric is doing is kind of playing on the on the well-established um, uh, conceptual divide between you know material things and immaterial or spiritual things, and you can see Carter is doing the same thing. But there's also also been a tradition that has seen the United States as a somehow uniquely or exceptionally materialist mm -hmm. nation, yeah. as if the rest of us weren't materialists. <laughs> for example, right? I mean, this is a this is a feature of um, kind of condescending, snobbish European discourse on the United States as if it were a markedly different civilization. Oh, as if they're uniquely materialist mm -hmm. over there. Unlike, uh, unlike we Europeans who, you know, obviously inhabit some kind of ethereal realm where we don't value um, material things uh, so much. So when Carter makes that speech in 1979, um, you're right. It wasn't su successful. He had a political opponent that opposed him, um, uh, quite strongly in the realm of, uh, rhetoric. And of course, we'll go on to win, uh, the election that they fought against one another, which was Ronald Reagan, who fa famously said in response to Carter's, um, uh, 
speech things like it's not confidence that we're losing it's our shirts you know which is a <laughs> metaphor for for um um ordinary people being uh ripped off or saying you know the problem isn't that we have lived too too well it's a problem that um uh, uh government has um uh, has impinged on our on our freedom to kind of enjoy um the material uh world and the material fruits that if you just get the government off our back we could continue to enjoy. If you read a lot of the historiography of the 1980s, materialism, which seemed to be almost like the religion that historians see someone like Reagan um, uh, promoting, um, then becomes uh, synonymous with the decade, right? We often think about oh, the 1980s as a particularly materialist um, uh, uh, decade. So, but within that within that binary, things are obviously much more complicated because, as you as you rightly say, Hannah, the thing about that speech with Carter is on he 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 um, he's talking about a situation, a crisis, I guess we could uh, call it that has very evidently material roots, right, based around the price of oil mm. um, and uh, the role of OPEC in determining the price of oil in the 1970s as we see happens with the two oil shocks and yet he says oh no it's not that's not the problem that's not the real problem right deeper than that deeper than that underlying that problem is in fact this crisis in confidence we've just kind of lost our um our, our spirit and maybe in that respect carter and reagan weren't you know themselves um uh all that different because you know reagan too could um uh refer to things that seemed uh somewhat immaterial as being the solution to the problem whether it's freedom for example if we're just free if we just liberate um uh the american uh people our problems will be uh will be solved you know as a in terms of a historical analysis um i don't reject uh, materialism. I embrace it. I would identify myself mm -hmm. as a historical materialist. I mean, what was going on in the 1970s was very evidently, to my mind, um, uh, uh, the, the, the product of long-run um, material processes, you know. And how do you see, I'm thinking about the difference between materialism and consumerism. Do you think that these two terms are interchangeable in this context or... or well, I think that's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I think that, um, a lot of historiography in the 1980s, when they, when they want to critique consumerism, they often, um, uh, historians are actually, actually use the term materialism. Mm. And so without necessarily defining it, right? As if we all know exactly what's meant by materialism, mm -hmm. but materialism itself is a kind of slippery, term and so what we need to do i think whenever we use the term is attempt to define precisely how um how we are using it right because it's one thing to say um one's a historical materialist it's another thing to say um one has a critique of uh consumerism um uh, in throughout the capitalist world and the way that for example drives um unsustainable uh, practices that result in kind of defilement and exploitation of material resources on one end of the production process and then on the other end of the production process results in, you know, pollution, toxicity, um, greenhouse gas emissions, um, 
uh, trash that we don't know what to do with. There's an example in the book of this infamous voyage in 1987 of the garbage barge, 3,000 tons of um, garbage that couldn't find a, a port that accepts its load. And it was mysteriously dumped um, at sea, like mm. a lot of human uh, waste uh, uh, has been. So, you know, yeah, I think materialism, consumerism, um, and related terms all need to be kind of carefully defined and disambiguated from one another so that we can try and try and find ways of, of talking about the things that in an age of, you know, in an age, in a, in a moment now, which I don't think is all that fundamentally different to the 1980s. That's another argument I make in the mm. book. We need to think about, um, the kind of, how materialism, for example, might inform our stance towards environmental concerns, mm -hmm. right? The belief that we live in a, in a fundamentally material, um, world and the things that we do with the material goods that we produce, consume and dispose of themselves have material effects mm -hmm. in, you know, the whole biosphere that we are all, um, uh, sharing, right? Seems, that seems to me an important consideration a kind of environmental materialism yeah. right that, that um uh i think is again quite distinct from um that use of the term materialism which is used to uh critique consumerism mm -hmm. and you also consider in this material like when you talk about things these things also consider nature for example as a material reality or we're talking more about manufactured products and useful tools of. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm most interested in, um, uh, human artifacts. Yeah. Okay. The, the way that humans, um, alter nature. I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the, um, most important environmental books that came out in the 1980s, since you mentioned it was Bill McKibben's The End of Nature, which was published in 1988. Mm which makes the comment and it's something I kind of refer to at different times in the, in the book that there's the, 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 na the nature in a kind of pristine untouched, untouched sense. It's not something that exists anymore, mm. right? The human civilization by that point, um, uh, at the, at the center of which, you know, seemed to be this great consumption engine of the United States itself had already so profoundly affected the natural that um it didn't really make um sense even on kind of empirical grounds mm -hmm. um to talk about nature as if it was as as if it's some um uh something other than man-made artifacts mm -hmm. and things we see that today with you know well i don't know if you follow the um uh, science that's emerging about how diffusely spread microplastics are. Mm -hmm. For example, the mm -hmm. fact that, you know, mm -hmm. in, you can detect microplastics in almost kind of any scoop of water you might take out of mm -hmm. any, um, ocean, even when it's not that, that, that visible, this sense of, um, and I guess it's quite a postmodern idea as well that, the, that, um, nature is gone, mm -hmm. right? There's, mm -hmm. there's, there's, mm -hmm. there's, there's no kind of pristine realm of nature that's not been affected by, um, by man thus thus far and I, I touch on those some of those arguments in the in the book as well right uh one thing that i found very interesting um and i maybe it's a bit of an underlying argument but um i do kind of 
feel that uh, at some point you say that there is a um, critical inattentiveness to the material qualities of material things. And I was thinking, um, and also reading this book, um, it feels like you're also calling back to, uh, or maybe renegotiation, renegotiating or uh, pointing to a more kind of material aspect to, to reality or to troubles. Because I find, I often find when writing uh, myself or reading things that people often talk about very much about the spiritual things, about the spiritual realm, whereas the material, like the real material conditions are often kind of forgotten or let out or more assumed. And I found in this book uh, and also in your other project as well, you focus very much on the actual material conditions. Do you feel that this is something as well that you uh, kind of try to bring forth in this book? Or Yeah, absolutely. I'd make two points uh, about that. One is kind of political and one is more um, scholarly. The critique I have of someone like Carter in the 1970s is, is precisely that, right? You have a moment where a very material problem manifests itself with ma very material um, uh, consequences, stagnant economy, runaway inflation with roots um, in the kind of platform on which the US and by extension global economy um, is still built, which is the fossil fuel um, industry. And the response of political leadership is to reach for uh, the rhetoric of the intangible. It's a crisis of confidence. No, it's, mm -hmm. it's not. Okay, it's a, it's a material um, crisis. But then there's another thing I would add is that um, I was very lucky to be writing the book when I was because um, I was writing it after uh, what we tend to refer to as a material turn mm. in the humanities that you kind of trace back from the 1990s um, uh, onwards. I mean, there's a kind of early, there was an earlier tradition that as it engaged with how um, the society, the spectacle, as Debord called it, or the kind of c consumer consumer capitalism or late capitalism. There was an earlier tradition that was, that, that was very good at pointing out, you know, um, its spectacular qualities, um, the way it worked as a system of um, uh, signs that could be um, consumed, et cetera, et cetera. One of the interesting things to me that happens with a material turn is precisely what you're talking about, that scholars across the humanities start to pay more significant attention to and give more kind of theoretical weight to um, the question of the material properties of things, however we um, want to want to define that and i think you know that that i i was writing this this book at a kind of propitious time in uh the recent history of the humanities and that that there was this conversation in literary uh, studies led by people like um bill brown um that that you know was already focusing on the representation of objects in literary texts and 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 the extent to which they engage with this question of uh, the material properties of things whilst also engaging with the problem of well they're just you know um literary texts they're not things themselves but representations of 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 things so yeah i mean there was a it was i was fortunate in that you know and this is true i think of um not just uh literature but academic mm -hmm. literature right if you're a historicist mm -hmm. um of any 
kind, you recognize that texts are to some extent, at least a result of the historical um, context out of which they emerge. And this book emerges out of a very specific um, moment, I would say, in the recent history of the humanities as well, that there's a kind of, you know, there was already this conversation going on about, uh, about um, uh, the role that things uh, play, not, you know, in our, in our social lives, but also um, uh, in terms of literary and cultural representations of things as well. If you, we are more or less arguing that the 80s are still going on, right? In a sense. And we are also arguing that the 80s had this big uh, reignation, as you said, right, of the, 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 the argument about things. Do you think that this material turn of the humanities is also related with this with the eighties and with this importance of material things that sort yeah uh, yeah, I think so i mean that that i it, I'd have to think more about how how precisely how i would how I would kind of relate the two mm -hmm. um phenomena i mean one of the things I do point out is that when Bill Brown publishes an essay like thing theory, which is quite an influential essay, he refers to a lot of popular literature that her, was already finding an audience about everyday objects in American life, like Henry Petrosky's The Pencil would be a good example of that. But he also talks about, you know, um, biographies of the potato or something <laughs> like that. And, he, and he's saying, you know, there's, there's, obvious, there's evidently something already in the culture that enables this mm -hmm. kind of stuff um, to be, uh, to be produ produced. I don't know how... Um, I don't know how closely I would want to tie that to some of the phenomena that we've already discussed. But one of the interesting things about that, that body of literature, stuff like Petrovsky's, uh, the pencil is it comes across as a kind of celebration of the design inherent in everyday objects, mm -hmm. which itself maybe marks a kind of shift from, um, an earlier, moment particularly in different fields i mean petrovsky's an engineer but mm. um a, a focus on a kind of critique of materialism right mm. that kind of work um represents a kind of popular embrace of um the wonder of material goods and everyday objects that surround us because they focus on things that we don't tend to think about, like, you know, how kind of, um, marvelous these things are as designed objects. And the fact that a kind of literary critical turn towards things would refer to that kind of tradition of a kind of celebratory, um, study of, uh, material culture, I think is itself an interesting develop in the development in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And we could ask, you know, does this, you know, is this a kind of end of history, um, phenomenon? This kind of, okay, well, you know, we're done arguing about, um, the evils of consumer capitalism. They've won. Um, <laughs> instead, right. we're, we're just going to celebrate how wonderful pens are. <laughs> you know, um, it's, sorry, yes. I, I, I frame that in reductive terms, but you, but you get yeah, the point. Yeah. No, mm. totally. Right. So, if we're, um, I think you offer a bit of a critical perspective as well, um, on these developments as you talk also, you also tie to, 
how this materialism uh, and the celebration of things also is tied to imperialism, I, I guess. Um, especially when you talk about oil. Yeah, right. Um, bringing back to indeed, so what is, um, how is this maybe problematic and how can you still see some of the tendencies of this, um, well, triumph of neoliberalism, as you call it, and 1980s as the beginning of, uh, an era of maybe neo neoliberalism, uh, and that, that has become sort of dominant, uh, or hegemonic, uh, form of political mm -hmm. economy. And so, um, you also already talked a little bit about how it's problematic for, say, the environment and, and microplastics. Um, could you maybe, uh, reflect a little bit on how this, uh, works in, in, and how this, how you see some of the things that you talk about in this book still in today? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a whole range of interesting debates packed in to that question. Um, and one of which is about, um, the neoliberalism word um, itself, right? A word that we hear a lot everywhere. Um, uh, you know, even if you, even if you just read the um, uh, university newspaper here, you might, you know, come across um, uh, students or student writers assailing um, neoliberalism. So it's worth thinking about exactly what we mean when we talk about, about that. I've already indicated that, the way I use it in the title of the book and the way I use it throughout the book is a kind of periodizing device, right? Mm -hmm. That um, it is my contention that from the 1970s to the present, um, neoliberalism in, enjoyed a kind of, has enjoyed over that period, a kind of ideological um, triumph. I think that was um, really uh pronounced in the 1980s in the United States and then came kind of became more settled globally um, in the 1990s and onwards. It's not quite the same um, to make, making that argument is not quite the same as saying, you know, this is where neoliberalism began. One of the, one of the things I make in the, one of the points I try to make in the early pages of the book is it's actually very difficult to pinpoint mm -hmm. where neoliberalism um, uh, began. Where, where do we start that story Mm -hmm. From, I mean, there's some brilliant work um, being published right now that that takes up that uh, question. It's one that I try to avoid because you know um, there's no way I've done um, sufficient research to um, uh, answer that question. But if you look at a book like um, uh, Quinn Slobodin's um, Globalists, it's a fascinating account of where um, the ideas that we now associate with neoliberalism um, came from. They stretch all the way back to early 20th century um, Vienna. But, you know, most of us are, are now familiar with um, what seem to be the kind of central planks of neoliberal ideology because many of us have grown up surrounded by those ideas, right? The idea that um, the major political question of the 20th century about the best way to run an economy, whether it's in kind of capitalist terms or socialist um, uh, terms or a kind of Keynesian approach to in, um, embedded liberalism has more or less been settled according to, you know, um, those who subscribe to a ne neoliberal ideology that free market, uh, free markets um, work uh, best that um, the government should 
um, allow free markets to operate wherever they can, that there should be significant deregulation of markets to allow them to work freely, that government by and large should try to take a, a kind of, uh, a kind of, uh, uh, backseat in the functioning of the economy. Um, these are the theoretical precepts mm-hmm. of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism in practice, I don't think has operated mm-hmm. in that way at all, right? I mean, neoliberalism in practice has been about instrumentalizing the state to serve the interests of, um, neoliberal ideology. Um, and, you know, I use that not even necessarily in a derogatory way to say neoliberal ideology, but if your analysis of what went wrong in the 1970s was, well, um, uh, inflation was out of control. So therefore what we need to do for the next, I don't know how many decades is target inflation. Um, you actually, there are instruments of the state that you can use mm. to help you do that, such as central banking, it, it, it's, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think neoliberalism in theory and neoliberalism in practice are, are quite different things. And the most obvious manifestation of that, I think, comes in the response to the financial crisis of 2007, 2008. Alan Greenspan, the former chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve, um, famously said in, in response to um, this crisis that shouldn't have happened, surely, if, you know, deregulated markets and the um, uh, the markets in um, uh, collateralized, collateralized debt obligations and other exotic financial instruments were were um, deregulated by law under the Clinton administration. That's what I mean, for example, by how the state can conserve the interests of mm-hmm. um, uh, neoliberal ideology. Greenspan famously said, I discovered a flaw in my uh, ideology um, when 2007 to 2008. I've, I've discovered a flaw in the, my fundamental way of looking uh, at the world. The self-regulating market did not... Um, uh, self-regulate. And at that moment, it's very interesting to see what happens. We see the states asserting their sovereignty, um, in the case of monetary sovereigns like the United States in the form of massive kind of creation of funds to bail out this private sector that supposedly was so efficient, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it puts or should have put the ideology, ideology of neoliberalism under some Strain, right? Okay, so we've been told that markets mm-hmm. work best when they're freest. We freed that market, and it blew up in all of our faces. And in response to that, what action was required, what was demanded, in fact, by those who had most profited from this regime was massive action on the part of the state to make you know those big financial players whole again make them make them able to uh to function properly again which by which was meant by those who supported this kind of um action to reap um massive material profits so one of the one of the one of the interesting things about that crisis though is it doesn't constitute the end of neoliberalism mm-hmm. in fact mm-hmm. you know a lot of the best um 
uh, work on neoliberalism has been about how neoliberalism since the crisis and the logic of neoliberalism since the crisis has been kind of re-entrenched or almost kind of deepened. Like, you know, I don't know if you know, um, Philip Morofsky's work on, on this is very good. Never let a crisis go to, go to waste. You know, he's, he's taught where he focuses on the response to uh the crisis or there's a good book there's an interesting book that just came out by a um uh a, a former official in the bill clinton administration that explains in very close detail precisely how the obama administration ended up ended up treating this crisis of neoliberalism in a way that you know seemed to redound to the great benefit of those who by any um, fair reading of the history caused the crisis, mm-hmm. mainly, you know, the major Wall Street, um, banks. So one of the, one of the interesting things about the historical moment we're in at the moment is, um, you know, neoliberalism may look kind of like it should be bloodied and bruised. And maybe it is in a lot of our minds, but it's not defeated mm-hmm. at this stage. Mm-hmm. It's still a powerful ideology, but I would say that it's being challenged by at least two other interesting, powerful ideologies at the moment. And one is a kind of resurgent nationalism, mm-hmm. um, uh, of one kind or another, which we, we see, um, uh, with Trump. Mm-hmm. And another is a, is a kind of a, a swing back towards, um, a politics that is, um, leftist rather than liberal and seeks to define itself uh, in opposition to um neoliberalism and i mean you can call this social democratic or democratic socialist etc cetera, etc cetera. but if we just limit ourselves to the united states that's very um uh, uh neatly exemplified by the emergence of bernie sanders as a major political player you know this this strange old social democrat who um calls himself a democratic socialist who decided in 2016 okay i'll run for the nomination because no one's gonna else seems to be willing to challenge hillary clinton and before you know it he seems remarkably popular with um large swathes of american uh voters despite everybody's assumption or prediction that nobody calling themselves a socialist could could ever be possible in the united states Mm -hmm. this characterologically anti-socialist um uh uh nation so we i think it's a really interesting moment in the history of capitalism um and the history of that era of capitalism that um i tend to refer to as the age of neoliberalism but precisely where we stand in the uh, life of neoliberalism as an ideology is impossible to say at this moment because we're so close to um uh this this weird kind of um uh friction between these 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 kind of three dominant political currents i've identified and talking we are now talking about crisis a little bit right we, we touched upon the crisis of 2007 2008 and as far as i know your research now you're focusing a lot on crisis right on discourse around crisis as well That's right so how do you see, uh, first, maybe we could talk a little bit about your research on crisis, what are, are your interests now, and maybe we could also relate it later to the so-called crisis of the humanities, which is also one of the topics of this podcast, and I don't know. Yeah, okay. I mean, 
talking about the first book, you know, the, the, I, 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 I said, well, you know, there's, there's often been this, um, argument about things in American culture and it gets reunited in the 1980s. Mm. Whilst I was writing that book, I was kind of thinking, there seems to be some other thing going on right now, which is we're not talking so much about things, but one thing I keep hearing is this term crisis, mm. like everything seems to be defined, mm. um, as a crisis. Um, let's, I've talked about the global financial crisis, 2007, 2008, but before that, 9-11 was, um, uh, understood by many as a national security crisis that d- demanded a kind of crisis-like, um, response, yeah. right? More recently, Trump's election itself has been framed as a crisis of democracy, democracy. Um, which is interesting uh, and needs to be uh, unpacked when you kind of push that a little harder. Some would say a crisis of liberal democracy, which is even more interesting because it then makes us think, oh, okay. So um, what's the difference between just saying democracy and, and just saying uh, 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 li- and saying liberal democracy? Um, you hear about public health crises, for example. One of the things that um, Hannah and I have studied in the MA seminar that uh, uh, I've been running this, this year is the uh, um, so-called opioid crisis mm-hmm. in um, uh, the United States, which if, has afflicted um, those sectors that have been those parts of the country that have been most um, badly hit by deindustrialization, particularly mm-hmm. um, uh, badly. And then you have, you know, I don't know. We don't know if crisis is the right term necessarily, but you have the climate situation um, uh, as well. So. Um, the thing that interests me is to try to think about, um, the role that the, that this crisis, this term crisis is playing in 21st century U.S. culture, broadly speaking. And then to think about, um, the ways that just with the first book, I guess, literature and culture serves to, um, either clarify the terms of, um, the debate about uh, crisis or whether literature and culture sometimes kind of, um, obscures, uh, what seemed to me the, uh, the roots of these various situations that we're calling about, uh, uh, uh that we're calling crises or, or at times, or at times, you know, really reveals, um, I think at its best literature, literature and, and culture can kind of reveal some of these, these roots and, mm. Anyone who studied the term crisis um, carefully will be familiar uh, uh, with the work of the German historian of ideas, Reinhard Kusselak, who, um, ha, you know, has done the most work on um, the history of crisis as an idea. And an important thing, uh, two important uh, claims that I that I. I find in in his work that I think are very relevant to thinking about the 21st century United States, even if they don't seem so immediately, are um, firstly that the, the crisis is, um, and the term crisis and the concept crisis is characteristic of modernity mm. as such. Right? He he traces the emergence of both the idea of critique and crisis um, to the emergence of um uh modernity itself in political terms we can associate that with the end of you know absolutism the end of an absolute uh monarch and the emergence 
um, which comes about with the rise, in fact, of the bourgeoisie and the kind of political emancipation of um, the bourgeoisie, the emergence of the political tendency to say, our lives don't need to be this way. We don't need to organize our political life this way. And human history, by extension, doesn't need to be this way. Things could be different. Right? For Koselik, these terms critique uh, and crisis, are, can, their emergence can be, can be traced to um, that, that um, fundamentally modern presumption, almost, in the West – to stand outside of present politics and stand outside even of history and mm -hmm. say things need not be this way. They could be uh, another way. And um, to the extent that that the crisis then is a kind of fundamentally modern uh, uh, concept, another thing that Kasselik talks about um, briefly in his, his book, uh, Critique and, and, and Crisis, is the role that, um, the United States serves as a kind of fundament fundamentally um, modern uh, nation. And in a way, that's where I'd like to pick up. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm at a fairly early stage with this <coughs> um, project, although I have I've written kind of fragments of it um, already. I think that's where I'd like to um, almost pick up where he um, uh, uh, leaves off, where he, he talks towards the end of his book on crisis and, and critique about um, he has some interesting comments about uh, the United States as a kind of uh, fundamentally um, uh, modern locus. And one of the texts that anyone who takes our American Studies BA should know, for example, is Thomas Paine's The American Crisis, where Paine narrates the American Revolution um, as a crisis, one of the earliest uses of the term crisis within the United States mm. uh, itself. So I'd kind of like to start there, um, leap to the present, think about um, what kind of continuities there are between that earlier modern moment and the 21st century and the way that Perhaps one way of thinking about crisis is the, the, I guess the fundamental claim of the book is that what we, what we talk about when we talk about crisis these days is, um, the continued friction of a series of, um, tensions or debates that have been part of modern political uh, life for centuries and remain unresolved. Central of which I claim are the claims for sovereignty by uh, the state, on the one hand, capital uh, is the second, and the third, uh, the political subject. Mm -hmm. In the 21st century, it seems that we have re-entered a period in which exactly who or what among those three um, uh, phenomena is sovereign has been thrown back into quite serious question. And I think on the, on the basis of, of that, it's interesting to study the way that 
U.S. literature and culture of the 21st century has attempted almost to intervene in that conversation by narrating crisis mm. as an idea in a series of ways that, I mean, they vary from de- text to text. I don't have a, a kind of, I don't have a, 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 a blanket argument about what all literary texts do, because I think literary and texts and other forms of culture, <coughs> culture actually, um, uh, vary in their ability to kind of decode, uh, crisis discourse. Um, but that, that's what I've, I've been working on recently anyway. Right. So maybe if I can, um, summarize a little bit, um, cause we're talking here about the humanities and what we think that they can do and what is important. And I think what, um, you do very interesting in both of these, um, well, in, the, in your book is already there, but also in your current research is that you point at something that, uh, or a moment when there is a very intense discourse about something. So in the 1980s, it was uh, goods, um, things, materialism. And then a little bit later, you have uh, 21st century, post 9-11, you have crisis as a very important concept. So, and then I would say that you kind of unpack them. You look at uh, sort of the cultural equivalent of it. You look at the material aspects as well, because you also, uh, maybe you didn't, yeah, you mentioned some of it, but you also very much look at, okay, but how... Does this affect the people that are living in these conditions? Mm. And then the final step is probably to problematize maybe the, the concept, um, or, or the discourse and, and you point at, uh, things that might be not very good at, um, that might be not very good for society. Say, um, some of the, uh, results of, um, the argument about things is that, uh, yeah, you have this environmental concerns. You have this idea that the U.S. is sort of establishing itself uh, as a very sort of imperialist country, the way they behave in the in the Middle East. And so, similarly for crisis, I think those things are also happening. Do you think that this is a reasonable summary of what you were kind of doing uh, as an academic? Lisa? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it is um, probably better than I could have provided. Um, <laughs> it's and it's interesting to to hear you describe that. Uh, it that way because you know um it's it's quite difficult to describe what one does um right. and one's own kind of impulses so it's interesting to hear someone else describe it and listening to you describe it i was thinking not only yeah that's about yeah that's about right <laughs> um but i suppose what i'm trying to i guess what i'm trying to do is is offer context mm-hmm. right for um you know whatever may seem to <coughs> animate um, public debates um, at a particular moment in history, whether it's the 21st century or the 1980s. Yeah, it's like I, I'm interested in isolating an element in public debate and saying, okay, let's stop and think about this mm-hmm. one thing and um, let's contextualize it. Let's contextualize it historically. Let's contextualize it um, theoretically. And then that's after we've done that, then let's examine how that idea, that concept permeates culture, the culture to the level of individual cultural productions, um, uh, whether literary text or visual or visual art or, or whatever. And then let's see how, what, if anything, we can say about how that cultural production itself then, um, might inflect that public debate um might 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 um influence that public debate in ways that um elucidate 
some of the complexities of whatever the phenomenon that we're talking about is, whether it's the argument about things or whether it's uh, crisis. So, yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty fair summary of what I'm trying to achieve, even if I wasn't aware of it until two minutes ago. Yeah, so thanks. Right. <laughs> Do you have anything to add? I think it's a good moment to trend. Right. Yeah, I think it's also, I mean, this might also be a good thing for, um, I don't know, fellow scholars, uh, aspiring scholars like mm -hmm. ourselves to, uh, to think about this a little bit more and also how to, I mean, all we see is a book, a finished book, and we'd be like, man, <laughs> um, first of all, that guy writes really well. <laughs> Will I ever be able to write so good? And then how does you have this finished product? And then, but I think the process is also interesting for us to talk about. Yes. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, we really enjoyed this conversation. Yes, thank you a lot. Thanks for having me. <laughs> all right. <laughs>